You're listening to audio from Grace Church Miami. May you be challenged and encouraged by this message. Having the affections of your heart stirred towards greater love and understanding of the person and work of Jesus Christ. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit gracechurch.miami. ask you to do a favor for me. If you would, go ahead and grab your phone, smartphone, hold it in your hand. Some of the young people are like, see, Mom, I need a phone. That way I can participate in the sermons. Go to your homepage. And let me ask you, when you're looking at your homepage, uh, you might have an Android, I have an iPhone. Uh, When you look at your homepage, you have a series of apps there. And as you're looking at these apps on your phone, These apps say a lot, really perhaps I'm not even realizing, a lot about you, say a lot about me. If nothing else, these apps indicate what is most important. On my phone, I have several pages of different apps. I have like folders of apps, and I've chosen to put on the front page the apps that I'm going to use the most frequently. If I was to ask you, you don't need to do it, but if I was to ask you to open up your photos folder and take a look at your photos, your Photos say a lot about you, what it is that you keep, what it is you delete, if you even take the time to delete pictures, who the pictures are are of, are they of other people or mostly of yourself. Now as we think about this, you also realize even the apps that you choose to get notifications from. In fact, right now as I'm talking to you, you might be getting notifications from something, to which I would now encourage you to take your phone and set it down on mute so that you don't have notifications. But as we think about the phone, perhaps some of you amongst the apps that you have on there even have some dating apps. Not one, maybe two, maybe three, depending on the app of choice and sort of the, the people you're trying to connect with. You might have Bumble on there. You might have OkCupid on there. You might have eHarmony on there. You might have Hinge on there. Those apps are ways in which you want to connect with people and make yourself available for others to connect with you. This is often in a city like Miami how people choose to become introduced to one another through the gift of technology, through the invention of these apps on our phones to be able to make such introductions to one another. Some of you perhaps are in a relationship right now with somebody that maybe you're seated with because you first met them on such an app. It's interesting as we consider these apps what it is we're trying to recognize You know, the truth is, relationships are hard. Dating is, well, to put it mildly, complicated, especially in a place like Miami. In one sense, Wallet Hub encouragingly says that Florida is the best state in the United States to be single, with first place in dating opportunities and sixth place in the category of romance and fun. However, Miami itself as a city doesn't rank so well. Miami ranks 147th place in Wallet Hub's dating opportunity rank and 157th place in the economics ranking. Even though Miami does rank number one in the category of fun and recreation, which means that there's a ton of stuff, great stuff to do in Miami. If you're on a date, the question is can you find someone to go on a date with? Singles typically congregate in cities. 
They do this not just because of work, they do this because of relationships and opportunities to connect, shared hobbies, shared interests. It's not surprising to learn that our city of Miami is majority single. But however, in a city that's majority single, you would think it would be easy and accessible to be in relationships if you'd care to be, and yet it maintains its elusiveness, its difficulty, its challenge. It's even tougher if you're a Christian to date in a city like Miami. While it is true that two years ago, Barna Research revealed that the top cities that had practicing Christians were New York, Boston, and third place Miami, it can still be hard to meet and share a shared conviction about the gospel, about truth, about what do you really believe? Do we just say, are you a Christian? I'm a Christian. That's enough. If you check the box on a survey as you're registering your profile, or maybe even your friend did it on your behalf, is that enough? Well, with any measure of honesty, you and I know that that is not true. So many Christians have either given up or go back to their old ways of dating before they were Christians. And those old ways of dating can be described as a number of ways, some of which include sort of the friends with benefits category. No commitment, but lots of benefits. Or perhaps the take what I can get because it's better than being alone category. This isn't really my first choice, my second choice, maybe my top 10 choice, but it's at least eight choice that I have, and I would rather be with someone even less desirable than no one. Well, tonight, I want to talk to you about that and many issues related to that. If you're joining us for the first time tonight, let me just say welcome. My name is Eric Bancroft. I'm one of the pastors here at Grace Church. You've met Pastor Chris. We also have Pastor Ronald. It is our desire to make you feel welcome and for you to have an understanding of what we're about. We're about the proclamation, the declaration, the, the, the demonstration and action of the good news of Jesus Christ. We want to do that not only with our lives, but also with the message that we teach. We realize not everybody here is a Christian. And that is why we're glad for you to be here, because we want you to hear why it is we think that we think based upon not our opinion, not our traditions, not our families, but based upon what the Bible teaches. We've been making our way through the Gospel of Matthew, the good news of the teachings of Jesus, as recorded by one of his earliest followers, whose name was Matthew, and we're all the way up to chapter 19. There's 28 chapters in his writings. We're up to chapter 19, and we were introduced last week to a text that's about Divorce. Divorce. But yet in that text, there's a lot of understandings that that original audience had that we don't necessarily have here this evening. And so we wanted to kind of slow the tape down and look at some of those topics so that we can understand what it is that Jesus is teaching. And so last week, we took a look at why does Jesus care about your gender? Why does Jesus care about your gender? And next week, we'll be taking a look at why does Jesus care about your marriage? And the following week, why does Jesus care about your divorce? But tonight, our topic tonight is why Jesus cares about your relationship. Why Jesus cares about your relationship. Now, listen, if you're married here tonight, do not think you can take the night off. This is not a night for you to kind of check out. Not only do you need to understand the Bible for yourself, 
as well. It will help you even better understand the relationship that you're in, but also how you can give counsel to others who are not yet in marriage relationships and how they make such decisions. Now, just to recognize the recognition here tonight of the gathering, this is a gathering of Christians to worship the Lord together. And so as a result of that, I am addressing primarily Christians, especially the members of Grace Church for whom I and other elders feel responsible for before the Lord. Hebrews 13 teaches that. However, I am also aware that others of you here are not Christian. And what I'm going to say about relationship will be disorienting to you But at least I will hope that you will have enough intellectual honesty with me tonight to recognize I'm not making it up. I'm literally reading the Bible and explaining it by way of application to our life so that at least you can, as a way of glasses to understand, see it the way that we're seeing it, whether or not you yet have committed to agree to it the way we're agreeing to it, that you might better understand how Jesus approaches these very common conversations for us. Similar to last week, and so that you can track with me and know where I'm headed tonight, I have three parts to what I want to cover from you, starting with Matthew 19. Part one is the culture's take on your relationship. Part two is God's take on your relationship. And part three, what you should do. The culture's take on your relationship, God's take on your relationship, and what you should do. Part one, the culture's take on your relationship. Now listen, we come to the topic of relationships at large, meaning not just particularly in the context of an exclusive relationship between a man and a woman, but actually any kind of friendship level relationship. Basically, the kind of name of the game in society is, listen, your relationship interests and expressions, your relationship pursuits and practices is largely left to you. As long as you are fulfilling what provides the greatest comfort and capacity for your own self-expression, and as long as you agree to not bring harm to anybody physically, you are welcome to express yourself with your express individuality, however you so choose. And anybody who says otherwise to you is not only unloving, they're actually oppressive and potentially even hateful towards you. And so really, kind of in that sense of cultural expression, the opportunity to pursue relationship is seemingly by your own natural instinctive desires, whatever you want, you can have. Which honestly, it's like telling a child this when it comes to any kind of food that they want to eat. Imagine taking a young child to the store, walking into the grocery store with an empty cart and telling your five-year-old, telling your 15-year-old, whatever you want, it's yours. I would take that grocery cart over to the Little Debbie Snacks. If you know Little Debbie, you've never lived. And I would fill it up with Swiss cake rolls, oatmeal cream pies. That's in a separate section. You can't find that with the cookies and the crackers. That's another aisle altogether. Don't worry, I'll disciple you in these things. (laughs) And then I might go back over to the earlier section and I might find the juice. Orange juice. I love orange juice. And then I might go over to the Oreos. Birthday cake Oreos are the best Oreos. And if you don't believe me, well, then you're wrong. (laughs) But the idea is I would come home, and I've actually had this happen before, where at times as a full-grown adult who has three children of my own, I have actually gone to the store impulsively and bought what I wanted to buy. And I've actually had the teller ask me, having a party tonight? (laughs) Kind of. 
with myself and any of my family members who want to join me, we look at this and go, man, that would just be horrible to be like that all the time. Dentists are like, by all means, keep doing that. You're keeping me in business. But this is what happens in how we pursue relationships. The world says, listen, whatever it is you want, however it is you want it, however you want to pursue it, whomever, however, whenever, in whatever way you want. This is increasingly common. We've all heard the term by now in today's contemporary culture, the term hookup. Hookup is defined briefly as an uncommitted sexual encounter between individuals who are not romantic partners or dating each other, let alone pursuing marriage with one another. This has emerged as more increasingly common. Hookups interestingly began almost 100 years ago in the 1920s with the surge and the increase of automobiles and entertainment such as movie theaters. Instead of a young man going to a young woman's house where they would sit in what would be known the front little parlor of the house under the watchful eye of the parents, they actually got to leave the property, drive away in an automobile. And as a result of that, got to explore their sexuality more freely because the desires of the heart didn't start in the 20s. They've been there since the beginning of time. By the 1960s, young adults became even more sexually liberated with the rise of feminism, widespread availability of, both, of birth control, and the growth of different sexual integrated college party events. Today, sexual behavior outside of traditional committed romantic pairs together in the context of marriage is increasingly common and acceptable. In fact, if today you're married and married young, you're seen as suspiciously disconnected from reality. Why would you commit so young when you have so much of your life left yet to live? As if to say marriage is itself an implied indentured servanthood that you want to delay as long as possible if commit to it ever. Influencing the shift in sexuality is popular culture. The media has become a source of sex education filled with often inaccurate portrayals of sexuality. The themes of books and plots of movies and television shows and lyrics of numerous songs all demonstrate a permissive sexuality amongst you and I as consumers. The media suggests that uncommitted sex or hookups can be both physically and emotionally enjoyable and occur without any strings. And for those of you who are Christians who are not participating in that, well, then you're really just missing out. Yet recently, the American Psychological Association did a study to track the results of hookup culture. An individual history of hookup behavior has been associated with a variety of mental health factors. Those with depressive symptoms and greater feelings of loneliness who have engaged in these hookups consequently and subsequently reported even increase in both depressive symptoms and feelings of loneliness. It turns out sin is fun until it's done. And then, like a good drug, you have to repeat it again in order to stay off what otherwise are those consequences which is often a conscience that bothers until eventually the conscience is seared and then it no longer bothers. This is the culture's take on your relationship. 
It's as the song goes, what happens when you're looking for love in all the wrong places. But now, let's take a look at part two, God's take on your relationship. And to see that, let's go to Matthew 19. Now, Matthew 19 is the text I introduced to you last week, and I want to return to it in what will seem like the unlikeliest of places. Because after all, there's a section heading, and perhaps if you have a Bible, is saying in your Bible, in Matthew 19, this is a teaching about divorce. And yet, I want you to see what's being said, again, in its context for our purposes tonight. Matthew 19, you can listen if you don't have a Bible with you as I read it to you. Matthew 19, starting in verse 1, all the way through verse 12. Now, when Jesus had finished these sayings, He went away from Galilee and entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. And large crowds followed Him, and He healed them there. And Pharisees came up to Him and tested Him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, Have you not read that He who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. They said to him, well, then why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? He said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another, commits adultery. And now our text for this evening, verse 10. The disciples said to him, If such is the, the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry. But he said to them, not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it is given. For there are eunuchs who have been so from birth, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this receive it. We'll stop there for our purposes tonight. Now, the context of this text I'm about to break down in a little bit more detail here is that as the Pharisees are trying to trap Jesus in which school, which rabbinical Jewish school he is subscribing to as to whether or not you can divorce your spouse and for what reasons. We'll talk more about this in two weeks' time, but basically to say there are some very extreme cases where anything is allowed and there's some very conservative cases where nothing is allowed. And like, where are you at in the spectrum? And Jesus answers the question by not subscribing to necessarily where the school of thought is of the day, but going back all the way to Genesis, which we took a look at last week, and how he goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 1 and 2. And then he gives the clarity as to when it is allowed and not allowed. And you can see in verse 10, the disciples are basically saying, wow, that kind of strict relationship obligation, it might just be better you never get married. And they're kind of saying it in such a way as if that's so limiting it would actually perhaps be better to not be married. As if it's like a bad thing. Jesus actually takes that statement and he affirms it, but not for reasons they expected. And this is where he gets into the topic of being a eunuch. Now, let me just say at the outset, this is not a biology class. 
and due to the fact that there are some younger people here, we don't intend to be very specific, but let's just say the idea of a eunuch is not all anatomy is present with the individual. In fact, he says here in verse 12, this group, this first reference being used here is a reference to those who would have some type of genetic defect, not all of their capacity, their reproductive capacity to be engaged in union with another person is actually physically present. He also gives a second reference where he talks about this idea, and you can see it in verse 12, but there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men. This is referring to castration, and you have to understand this, while this is completely lost in you today culturally, the reality is in first century time, at that time, as is even some remote places in the world today, this would actually be an action taken by those in ruling authority, particularly kings or in other type of royal courts, not necessarily done as a punishment, but as a way to provide no confusion of why the person is present with those individuals. To be more specific, if a man was asked to oversee and take care of a king's harem of wives, he did not want that man sleeping with all those women. So it would not be uncommon to have that person castrated so that that would not be the practice of an individual. So Jesus is introducing this idea of castration. Now, it's need to, uh, to being an idea, idea of being a eunuch, rather. You need to recognize this is regarded not as highly desirable. Why? Because a eunuch could never become a priest, according to Leviticus law. They could not enter the congregation, according to Deuteronomy. But Jesus actually says something here specifically in a commendable way. And it gets to this idea of what he says in the second part of verse 12. There are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Now, it's a great debate here whether or not they've actually physically taken action. It's believed by most interpreters they've not actually physically taken the action, but rather the pledge of what the action would be intended, which is they did not commit themselves to a relationship with another person, particularly in the context of marriage, in order that they might be about the kingdom of God. This is exactly what Paul picks up on later in 1 Corinthians 7 when he speaks about the commendation of singleness as being for some people for a specific reason. Today, I imagine that there are some people who are here who are single who want to maintain your singleness for a couple of reasons. Not uncommonly to hear these. Number one, you might want to maintain your singleness because the example you had in marriage or the bad example or good example, whatever that may be missing example, you don't want to repeat that. So if you came from a bad family, you're like, if that's what marriage looked like, I don't want anything to do with it. Others of you perhaps are thinking, I want to be single in your pursuit of singleness because you're like, you know what? I have enjoyed accomplishing what I've accomplished and being rewarded accordingly financially. And if I get married, i got to share the money. And that's my money, honey. I'm not sharing it with anybody. Or sometimes with singleness, you've kind of moved from dorm life to home life to single apartment life to house life. And honestly, the flexibility to go where you want to go, do what you want to do, it's just honestly too nice to have to give up. It's true. 
It's true. It's true that the, the longer you're single, it's sort of the, the deeper that rut can be where you just kind of get in that rut. And like to get out of the rut, it's like, man, that, that's going to, that's a cause for some new alignment right there. But that's not how Jesus is commending singleness to be considered. Jesus' commendation of singleness, you can see here in the text, is for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Jesus is not anti-relationship. He just got finished explaining the answer to the question about divorce and remarriage. But Jesus is actually in the middle of this commending relationship to be not pursued for a purpose that's not for self, but for the Savior, for the kingdom of heaven. It means that God gives grace, and that's exactly what's being said at the very end, let the one who's able to receive this receive it, meaning it's a gift from the Lord, and it's a gift from the Lord in the intention that it would be an opportunity to accept this as an opportunity for greater service. Jesus is saying here that the claims of the kingdom override all other claims and that some are called to serve in the pathway of celibacy. There is no one path of service, but whatever a person's calling is, grace will be given to that fulfillment. For some, it's marriage, and for some, it's singleness. Now, let me speak to you as your pastor. Many of you who are here are new to the Christian life. Many of the members of Grace Church are new to the Christian life. They have become Christians in the last year or two, maybe three. You have put your faith in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And for those of you who are not Christians, being new to the Christian life does not mean that's when these people started attending church, or that's when they bought Bibles, or that's when they started, you know, cussing a little bit less and being a little bit nicer. That's not at all what we mean when we talk about new to the Christian life. What we're talking about is they came to an understanding of what we would want you to come to an understanding of, which is that there is no way under heaven, there's no way on earth that anyone can have peace with God apart from repentance and faith in His Son, Jesus Christ. So why would I want peace with God? Because you have what I used to have, which is an insurmountable problem, an unreachable chasm that I cannot pass on my own, which is how is this God who created me and you and everything I see who is perfect and righteous, how is that God going to have anything to do with me that even though He created me, I've done nothing but rebel? Even my best works have seemingly been acts of my own self-righteousness. When a holy God can have nothing to do with a sinful sinner like myself. And that's the good news of Jesus Christ, that Jesus sent, that God sent His Son, Jesus Christ, as the only qualified substitute for me or for you. That in His righteousness there is hope. In His death, there can be forgiveness. That in His resurrection, there is life. And all those who repent of their sins and put their faith in Him, there is new life. Forgiveness, hope, peace, no longer about who I am and what I've done. That's what it means to be new to the Christian life, that I have understood that and believed in that. I've put my faith in that. But for those of you who are new Christians, on the context of relationships, Here's oftentimes what happens. You're starting to enjoy your new life in Christ. You're enjoying your new gigantic Christian family. Brothers and sisters, you never knew you had until your faith is in Christ. However, 
you're not that far removed from the days when you made fundamentally different relationship decisions. For some of you, that was gay relationships. For others of you, that was straight relationships. But now enough time has passed since you became a Christian, and you're starting to default back to what is familiar and available and encouraged by those around you who are not Christian. You do this for several reasons. Number one, you're lonely. You're just flat out lonely. It's not uncommon, doesn't make you abnormal, it makes you very normal. And that loneliness feels pressing in on you week after week, weekend after weekend, Monday after Monday when people ask, what'd you do this weekend? Number two, you're tempted sexually. And it's easy to say yes to what is waiting for you. It explains why you hang out with some of the people you do. It's not to share with them the good news of Jesus like someone shared it with you. It's because it beats being alone on a Friday night, especially if you can have your own sexual desires fulfilled. And yet this is not how God intends us to think as Christians about our singleness, about our sexuality, about our relationships. Sarah Ekoff Zystra writes the following So here's the secret, she says. On the one hand, gospel-bound Christians value sex more than our culture does, so much that we don't just give it away. For single Christians, that means refraining altogether. For married Christians, that means limiting sex to your spouse inside the bounds of marriage. On the other hand, she says, gospel-bound Christians value sex less than our culture does. We reject the increasingly common view that unless you're having sex the way you want it, you're living an unfulfilled life. A celibate, gospel-bound Christian is living just as much of a fulfilling, exciting, interesting, and meaningful life as a married, sexually active, gospel-bound Christian is. But this is the challenge and the problem. This is the temptation. And it's not new. Look to the right in your Bibles. You're been in Matthew. Now go to 1 Corinthians 6. Look at what it says in 1 Corinthians 6. Also, new Christians, not coming from Christian backgrounds, did not grow up in churches. He's trying to address where they're coming from and how they're living today and where they're tempted. Look at what he says in 1 Corinthians 6, verse 12. Paul writes, All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Food is meant for the stomach and stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by His power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh." But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee, verse 18, from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body. 
but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you are bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. A couple of things I want to say. First of all, culturally, what we just talked about, and then practically as far as where you are living right now, perhaps today in Miami. Culturally, in that city, in the city of Corinth, they had lots of different religious worship options. One of the options was this temple that people participate in worship, which include having sex with temple prostitutes. The reference he's making there is so ubiquitous to this practice that a Corinthian woman in larger vernacular was known as being a prostitute. That sort of like guilt by association in the city. And so he's taking this understanding and saying, you are not in any way to be bound to such a person. To use modern-day connection, it's the same idea he's saying it's not necessarily what a person does for a living, in this case a prostitute in the context of religious worship. It's saying the idea of a Christian who has been bought with a price, who lives for the Lord, to attach themselves, to be bound to, to be connected with somebody who is not a Christian and be having such relationships with them is to actually do so in such a way that's causing a great divide in your testimony for Christ. And you see what's taking place there. What's actually being said? It talks about how the two will become one flesh. This is the exact same reference Jesus gave in Matthew 19. He who is joined to the Lord becomes one with him. Therefore, flee sexual immorality. Every other sin is committed outside the body, but sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Friends, God's not just concerned for your soul. He's concerned with what you do with your life in light of your soul. Some of you might be thinking, what if I'm dating a Christian? How do I interact accordingly? Let me ask you to turn the Bible further to the right, to 1 Thessalonians. Past Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. Go to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Same author, but a different church. This church is a young, new church. They're walking in obedience to the Lord. They're known in their reputation. We see that in chapter 1 their work of faith, their labor of love, their steadfastness of hope, as we said in verse 3. But now go to chapter 4, verse 1. Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you received from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. This is the will of God. Like, I want to know God's will for my life. What is God's will? Verse 3, your sanctification, which means how you live in light of your profession of faith in Christ. Continues in verse 3, that you abstain from sexual morality, that each of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you, for God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this disregards not man, but God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Friends, let me just tell you right now at the outset, right now a lot of single Christians 
are trying to figure out what is God's will for their future relationship status. God, do you have me to be married? If so, who is it? Can I pick? Because I have my criteria. I have my standards. I have things I'm looking for. I kind of want to know, God, if you do have somebody, is it like soon? I'll wait as long as it's not going to wait too long. 2021? I don't have to be married by 2022, but at least can I be in a relationship by the end of 2021? And as a result of that, we're wanting to know, first and foremost, God's will for our life in regards to our mate. And miss and skip right over what is clearly God's real will for our life, as it says there in verse 3, your sanctification. God's desire for all of His people, single or married, male or female, young or old, is that we would live in a manner that is representative, that is indicative of our faith in Christ. That's what it says in verse 1. We ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you received from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you're doing, that you do so more and more. This goes all the way back to chapter 1 about how they responded to the gospel. It says in chapter 1, verse 10, how you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God. Friends, while you're still praying and waiting for clarity on whether or not you're going to pursue relationships and with whom should you pursue them, you should already have clarity that God wants and intends for your relationship to be with Him and what that relationship should look like. Our lives should not be first and foremost about us and our desires. They should be about glorifying God. Being obedience to God is where we find that ultimate fulfillment and meaning. Which takes us to part three. What should you do? So part one, the culture's take on relationship. Part two, God's take on your relationship. Now part three, what you should do. Relationships have power over us. Such people not only introduce us to new food, new music, new memories, they even entrap us in a cycle of bad decisions. I should know. I myself used to be in that for a couple of years during my college years. Here are some takeaways that we can apply to our lives in light of Matthew 19, 1 Corinthians 6, 1 Thessalonians 4, and more. First of all, address the motives behind your desire for a relationship. Address the motives behind your desire for a relationship. For some of you, you might have great motives. For some of you, there might be less than great motives. For some of you, it might be because you're finding your identity in having a relationship. And when you are incomplete, or so you think, it's because you do not have someone next to you. And you've learned this impulse. You started this way when you were in junior high and then high school. You found your kind of social space based upon the fact that you were always in a relationship. You went from one girlfriend or boyfriend to another. And to not have one, it feels incomplete and to really undermine your very identity. 
For others of you, the motive might not be identity, it might be loneliness. It's not actually a care for another person, it's care for yourself. You're just lonely and you think the only way to address that loneliness is to have a companion that you can be in a relationship with. For others, it's discontentment. It's I know that my identity is not in this and I know that my loneliness should be addressed, but the reality is I have waited too long in my estimation and as a result of that, I'm not content with the Lord's timing, so I have prematurely acted according to what I think is best for me. If you've decided like that, as a lot of singles do, that puts you in company with people like Abraham and Sarah, where God made promise to Abraham and Sarah that he was going to provide for them, in this case, a child, and they waited, and they waited, and they waited, and like, you know what, I think the Lord needs some help. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to take the maidservant, Hagar, Abraham, you go be with her. And when she gets pregnant, we're like, ta-da, you're welcome, God. I took matters in our own hands. We, we got taken care of. Some of you are making the same mistake, or at least tempted to make the same mistake. You're discontent with what the Lord has provided or the timing which he's providing, it, and so you're taking matters into your own hands. And as a result of that, it's causing great consequence of pain pain of conscience, pain of relationship. For others, the motive behind your desire for relationship is, again, an outlet for lust. Someone who will satisfy your own desires. This is oftentimes an exchange that happens between men and women. One that can provide identity for another, while the other provides the satisfaction to lust for the other. Both are self-serving. Most motives behind relationships are actually serving of self, not serving of the Lord and serving of others. Number two, get counsel from Christians for wisdom and accountability. Get counsel from Christians for wisdom and accountability. Now, if you're a member of Grace Church, as a number of you are, that's what your church family is about. That's why we care for each other and want to be involved in your life. And we can tell you not just the good decisions we made, but even the bad decisions we made and the consequences because of that. You should be aware of well-intended but immature Christians' counsel that basically goes something like this. Date someone who is a Christian that you're attracted to, and if after dating long enough you think you really like the person, marry them. That's like very normal counsel from well-intended, very immature Christians. Building a relationship on the foundation of attraction is very common and tremendously misguided. And some type of superficial compatibility as a means by which you can determine the credibility of the future sustainability of the relationship is often misguided. Your scorecard is likely off. The scorecard's likely off in how you consider another person and how you consider yourself. There's an article that a number of us have been reading recently. It was published back in 2016, but it's been making its way, some of the guys at Grace Church, and the title basically says, dude, you're maybe a six. And the gist of the article is this. 
Every guy is hoping to marry a 10 on a scale of 1 to 10. Believing, of course, he deserves a 10. And just thinks accordingly that he should get that 10. When the problem is, his scorecard is already often very faulty in what he is numerically associating as valuable, as attractive, as worthwhile, as attention-grabbing. Also, seconded to that problem is that his own self-assessment is highly inflated. He considers himself, by implication, worthy of a 10, so therefore likely himself a 10. And the gist of this article, basically, the guy who writes it was retelling the conversation he had with the gentleman, and he basically had to blurt it out and said, basically, you're, he said, basically, you're like maybe a six. Even that was a gracious assessment, I would imagine. The problem is, we get counsel from Christians, if we're not careful, it'll be the counsel we want to hear, not what we need to hear. That's why we want godly wisdom and accountability. Listen to people who ask you questions about your heart, about your desires, about your identity. Listen to people who will teach you how to look for someone who has self-control. Self-control with their money, self-control with their time, self-control with their lust, self-control with their emotions. You know what self-control is? It's another way of saying maturity. You can find somebody who doesn't have self-control in those areas, but be prepared for the roller coaster to come. You will be on a ride for as many years as you're in that relationship. And you also want counsel for people who have a demonstrated desire for growth and godliness. You want to be in a relationship with someone who understands the practice of forgiveness of your sin and repentance of their own sin. If they're always right and you're always wrong, if it's always their law, not God's law, if it's always their good news, not the good news of Jesus Christ, it's going to be miserable. Third, prepare to dissolve your relationship, otherwise prepare for permanence. Prepare to dissolve your relationship, otherwise prepare for permanence. And why would I say this? Am I speaking against myself? It's a pretty simple principle. Assuming a Christian conscious about relationships and a high view of marriage, you either marry them or you break up with them. That's the reality of your relationships. Now, I realize some of you here are not Christians. like, dude, marriage is not even my spectrum of consideration. Well, you're welcome to choose that approach, but I can assure you that will not be the best choice by anybody's objective standard of measurement because nothing gets better. You cannot improve upon the wisdom of God from the Word of God from the very person who created us knows us the best. My concern is people who get into relationships as a way, as a stopgap to just address loneliness. And what they're doing is they're basically practicing divorcing by repeatedly getting into relationships and getting out of them so easily, so haphazardly. This is why I always encourage people who are dating brothers and sisters in Christ, say, listen, whether or not you're going to be married to this person remains to be seen. But what is already known is that that is your brother or that is your sister in Christ. Treat them with honor and with respect with the quite likely reality, you're dating somebody else's spouse right now. And somebody else is dating your spouse right now. Now, how would you like them to be treated in your absence? I assume that would be with honor and respect and not without regret. Four, being free from being a slave to a relationship can make for a great relationship. Being free from being a slave to a relationship 
can make for a great relationship. When your relationship does not define you or drive you, you are free to enjoy the gift open-handedly. You don't have to become so possessive of that person or that relationship because it doesn't define you. It's not your God. That person is not your Savior. Gentlemen, make it your aim to be the first to encourage your girlfriend to be involved in fellowship with other Christians, not just you. Be the last to feel any desire to cut off from corporate worship with the body of Christ. Be diligent at yourself about carving out time for corporate worship as you're carving out alone time with the Lord, not just alone time with each other. Ladies, you want a man who has a solid, healthy relationship, godly relationship with other men in the body of Christ. Be as affirming and desiring for his time with the body of Christ as you are about his time with you. Perhaps the temptation for either one of you is immaturity and or fear and therefore corresponding possessiveness of that relationship that will not liberate them to the reality of Christian community. Therefore, both of you in your relationship should have that be in the context of service. Think not just what we're going to do to be together that we enjoy, but what are we going to do together that by being together, we are stronger in how we're growing in Christ-likeness and serving others serving each other, serving others, and ultimately serving the Lord. Fifth and final, you live for the honor of Christ, not yourself. Relationships can default to being intrinsically self-centered. You're either desiring your own selfish interests or you're trying to navigate the selfish interests of another in relationship. But 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 15 says the following, And he died for all that those who might live might no longer live for themselves but for Him, who for their sake died and was raised. Friends, whether or not we're single or married, whether or not we're dating now or later, if you are in Christ, then you and I share the same pursuit and by principle the same practice. We live for the honor of Christ. It is His life that He has given to us, and now giving our life to Him, we now want to live for His honor. For those of you who are not aware, I just want to make you aware of a resource we have at Grace Church, and it's a four-part series on singleness and dating. You can find it on our webpage, YouTube channel, etc., where this are talked about in more detail. But in our context of Matthew 19, Jesus' assumption of divorce is marriage. Jesus' assumption of marriage is relationship. And I want you to recognize what Jesus says, first of all, in Matthew 19, He doesn't assume that everybody should be in a relationship. But as the Word of God says, if you are in a relationship, what does that relationship say about you? We've asked the question at the beginning, what does your phone say about you? Now we end with the question, what does your relationship say about you? Not first a relationship with somebody else here tonight or somebody else in the city of Miami or someone else you desire to be in a relationship with, but ultimately, what does your relationship with the Lord look like? Thank you for listening to audio from Grace Church Miami. God draw you nearer to Him through His Word. 
If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit gracechurch.miami.